would love for my patients to understand how complicated it is to run clinical trials that lead to a drug's approval. And honestly, how hard the FDA works to get it right, to make sure they're making the right decision, and how seriously those of us who've been on these FDA committees, how much we sit around that table and think about our patients and think about the doctor, we really genuinely sit down and think about the health of the public. We're back with Dr. Mikhail Sekaris. We're talking about his book, Drugs and the FDA from MIT Press 2022. It is out now. You can buy it right now. Highly recommend it. I don't know if this is a book you're familiar with, but one of the best books and one of my favorite books we read for this show is a book called Cadillac Desert by Mark Reisner. It is the history of the Bureau of Reclamation. Oh, cool. You don't know Mark Reisner because he's passed away, but you guys are kindred spirits. Because if I told you, would you like to read a history of the Bureau of Reclamation, you'd probably look askance and walk away. But it is a fascinating book. And I can say the same thing about drugs in the FDA. You look at it, you think, I don't want to read about the FDA, but then you open a page of it and you do want to read about the FDA. So that's my plug for the book. What is the FDA? Why do they exist? And what do they do? So the U.S. Food and Drug Administration is probably the most trusted regulatory body in the world. Their job is to make sure that the drugs and the food that we take in are safe and that the drugs are effective. But the FDA was born out of tragedy. For me, this was a learning experience as well. I'd heard a lot of stories about the formation of the FDA. It was so much fun to actually do the research and see where truth lay. So in the 19th century, there was no FDA and there was no regulation of anything people would take in. So there were these medicines that were called patent medicines with dubious names like Hamlin's wizard oil. <laughs> and they weren't exactly the medicinal panaceas that they claimed to be. This is a drug that advertised itself as this wondrous cure for ailments ranging from toothache, rheumatism, lame back, hydrophobia, pneumonia, all the way to cancer. Yet it was largely comprised of alcohol, opiates, and things like Kubebs or raspberry extract to make it taste good. So what happened around the turn of the century is there were 22 kids in St. Louis and Camden, New Jersey, who fell ill with smallpox and diphtheria. And they were given vaccines to treat this infection. But because there was no regulation of drugs that anybody got, the vaccines actually were contaminated with another deadly toxin, tetanus. And these kids died from tetanus infections. So that led to the very first legislation that created what was called the Pure Food and Drug Act, early 1900s. It was then another horrible tragedy that led for the first time to what was then called the FDA actually requiring that drugs be safe. Before that, they just had to have honest labeling. So if something said, we have in here alcohol, opiates, kubebs, and raspberry extract, it had to actually contain those ingredients. Didn't have to be safe though. But then in the 1930s, remember the most serious illnesses that caused death in the US in the 1930s were infections, very similar to COVID-19. When COVID-19 was the leading cause of death in 2020 and 2021 in this country, it surpassed cancer and heart disease. So back then it was the same deal. 
sulfa-antibiotics were already available to people, but a company wanted to make a sulfa-antibiotic that was a liquid form and actually would taste better. So their chemist added to this things like saccharin, caramel, and a sweet-tasting solvent called diethylene glycol, which today we call antifreeze. So this guy, Harold called Watkins, threw antifreeze into the mix. They would just test a little bit of it and say, oh, this tastes sweet. This is good to ingest. But nobody actually made sure that it was safe. And they shipped 240 gallons of this medicine around the country. Lo and behold, of course, 71 adults and 34 kids died from taking antifreeze. What would be a fatal dose? Oh, my word. Well, they had to have dispensed it not in great forms to each person. So it had to be, if you imagine going to CVS and being prescribed like a cough medicine or something, one of those bottles that you would get of about that size, that was probably about enough. Okay, so 240 gallons and about 12 ounces is a fatal dose. Something like that, right. There's a lot of fatal doses out there. Yeah, so what wound up happening is remarkable. The FDA mobilized every member of the FDA and they actually were able to track down 234 of the 240 gallons and recover them. But this led to the very first legislation that the FDA actually required that drugs be safe. And it wasn't until 1938 that that happened. So one of the kind of central premises of this book is that the birth of the FDA actually came from tragedy in every single instance. And to think about how the FDA acts now, you have to remember that history. The FDA was based on drugs that killed people. So they're always going to make sure that drugs are safe, 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 even more so than they're effective before we get them. That's interesting. I think this is part of the reason that people have a bad taste in their mouth about the government in general, is that you could have substituted basically any government agency in that sentence. The birth of X was tragedy. It's hard to motivate humans to regulate themselves unless there's an absolutely undeniable need. In some cases, even when there is, we won't do it. But like you said, what was it, 20 children dying and then people being poisoned with antifreeze? It's remarkable, right? But it takes that kind of huge tragedy before the government pivots to actually act and recognize the necessity of doing something like making sure drugs are safe and effective. So from 1938 to about the 1980s, we've got this very slow, scientific, deliberate process of approving drugs and making sure they're safe for the public. And then in the 1980s, what happens? So in the 1980s, of course, that's when HIV and AIDS hit. What I did in researching this, I went back to the very first reports of people who were dying of these very strange pneumonias, known at the time as pneumocystis carinii pneumonia, and very, very rare skin cancers, which previously had only been seen in old Mediterranean men. And yet they were seen in all these young men. So you see these reports in morbidity and mortality weekly reports about this spate of people with horrible pneumonias on the West Coast and these cancers emerging. And people start to freak out. And as I'm reading this and writing this book, it's actually just as COVID is breaking as well. I started writing the book in 2020. The same exact thing was happening. People had this awful coronavirus infection. Nobody really knew what caused it. And remember, the initial reports were all about washing surfaces and contact. We would go through these exercises. I remember we would go and make one trip a week to the supermarket, bring it into our garage, 
and then go through the existential exercise of opening up the box of wipes to wipe down the box of wipes and everything else that was in the garage that was our safe zone, then we bring it into the house. So we were particularly conservative in how we interpreted safety because of the patients I treat. Because reports were also starting to emerge, and I actually authored one of these reports about the higher mortality rate among people who had blood and bone marrow cancers compared to the rest of the population if they got COVID. So for me, it wasn't just a personal and public health perspective. I was going through all of this to make sure that my patients were safe, that I wasn't bringing them the virus. I think we all hope that our doctors would do that. So thank you on behalf of all your patients for going that extra mile. That's what we do, right? This was all breaking and I was reading about the same horror and fear that was emerging among people who had HIV and AIDS. And that was all in the setting of a government where the president wouldn't even mutter the word for another two or three years. So a very conservative government, very similar to when COVID was breaking as well, where we had a government that we were getting so many mixed messages from it, we didn't know what to believe. And we were getting mixed messages even in the news about both COVID and at the time, HIV AIDS. There's a famous story about how the New York Times reported that you could get AIDS from saliva and people believed it for years afterwards, even though that wasn't true. So all of this was happening. And then you had the birth of really vigilant patient advocacy groups like ACT UP. And they basically said, okay, we're not going to follow the old rules of patient advocacy where everyone's polite. We're going to stage these massive protests at FDA headquarters, shut them down until they give us a seat at the table. And they did. This advocacy finally led to legislation that was passed in 1992 that allowed a mechanism to pay for drugs to move through the approval process much quicker than they had before. And that was known as accelerated approval. The rules of accelerated approval is that it has to be a drug that treats a life-threatening infection where there aren't other drugs out there that can treat it. So it's got to be basically a public health threat, nothing else available, just like in the HIV AIDS era. And it could be approved based on an endpoint that wasn't necessarily that people live longer. It might be something that was like, you know, an HIV viral load went down or cancer shrunk. But because it was approved based on these kind of interim measures of success, it required that a follow-up study be conducted that had a real measure of success. And if that follow-up study didn't demonstrate that benefit, the drug could be pulled from the market. How easy is it to pull a drug from the market? It's very hard. <laughs> right. And that's one of the criticisms of accelerated approval and why there's actually legislation that's moving through Congress now to try to make it easier for the FDA to do that. You would think that the FDA can turn to a manufacturer and say, you know what? We gave you a nod. We believed you that this drug worked and it was safe enough for people to get it based on earlier phase studies. We demanded that you conduct a follow-up study to demonstrate that safety and efficacy. The follow-up study flunked, so you had to pull your drug from the market. The FDA has done that, and there are companies that have said, okay, we'll do that. But there are also companies that have said, no, we're not going to do that. What are you going to do about it? And that leads to what's essentially, it's almost like a trial, a court case of the FDA's lawyers versus the manufacturer's lawyers. And then they just do procedural fuckery and sell the drug for as long as possible until they eventually lose the case? You know, it's not that far-fetched, and that's something that I wondered myself. In the book, I talk specifically about a breast cancer drug known as Avasta. And this drug was approved 
using the accelerated approval mechanism in women with metastatic breast cancer, right? Definitely a patient population who was desperate for better drugs out there, a drug that showed in a preliminary study that it seemed to work, but didn't improve overall survival, didn't allow women to live longer. So it demanded a follow-up study, but the follow-up study did not demonstrate that women lived longer with the Avastin. And it had a lot of side effects, including women dying from getting the drug, from side effects of the drug. It's amazing, right? So in the book, I talk about this and the fact that Avastin was a billion dollar a year drug for its manufacturer, Genentech, a billion dollars a year. So when the FDA turned to Genentech and said, pull your drug, and Genentech said no, and that led to a trial that occurred eight months later, well, you do the math. What do you think they paid for their lawyers versus what do you think they received for having the drug on the market for an additional eight months? Do you think we've ended up with more diseases as a result of this? Because I can imagine if you're a pharmaceutical company, what would be profitable would be like, let's invent a disease and then invent a cure for it. And then we'll get it fast tracked. And then we can run a billion dollar ad campaign to make people think they have it. And then we can tell them the drug to cure it. And we'll be the only ones who have it. Does that happen? I think we would be crazy to think that doesn't happen. You know, if you're watching TV, all of a sudden these three-letter acronyms will pop up about things that you never even thought of before, that all of a sudden have a drug for it. And I always say that that's a drug looking for an indication, not an indication looking for a drug. So you will have this parsing out of different disease subtypes to make an excuse for a drug and why it should get FDA approval. Because once it's on the market in the United States, it can be used for any indication. It does not have to be an on-label indication. Oh, so I can get a drug approved for restless leg syndrome and then market it as an antidepressant if I want to. So you're absolutely right. You could have a drug that's approved for restless syndrome and then I, as a doctor, could use it for whatever I want, just a heart failure, brain tumor, my choice, but you can't market it for that indication. That's the rules of the FDA. You can only market on label. But let's say that you pay for a clinical trial of this restless leg drug and I use it in patients with heart failure and lo and behold, their heart failure gets better. Then certainly as a prescriber, I can use it for heart failure. Wow. And that's something that maybe pharmaceutical reps would let you know that this study has been done and you can prescribe it this way. They've got to be careful about it, right? Because the rules of the FDA are a drug company can only market on label, including all of their drug reps, but they play games, right? So they'll say, gee, doctor, if you want to ask me about certain studies that are used for other indications, you can, and I will provide you with the literature for those studies. But they can't say to you, you can use your restless leg drug in heart failure. Yeah, our system is perfect. It's really a game. <laughs> and that's part of some of the Purdue Pharma stuff is that some of their drug reps got nailed for playing games like this. Yikes. So let me ask you a question. And this actually really gets to the heart of a lot of your writing and the heart of the questions that people have about the medical establishment in general is, you know, we could sit here and talk about how fucked up medicine is and how messed up the profit incentives are. And we could do that forever. And it's funny. And it's funny because it's depressing and true. And I think about one of the jokes we made in one of the first episodes of this podcast, we read Middlemarch, and there are doctors in Middlemarch. Pretty much all they can do is they can set a bone. But the only thing they could prescribe was whiskey or opium or brandy. I have a chapter in my book about syphilis. Basically, the treatment for syphilis was mercury. 
they would give you a mercury salve and then you would put it on the syphilis rash and then it would go away, but it was going to go away anyway. And so then when it came back, they would give you a mercury pill and then that would kill you. The medical literature and patent medicines and all this medical history is just brimming with stories like this where every doctor at the time would have told you, no, this is the shit. This is how it works. This is how we cure stuff. And it turns out that they're wrong. But in the 20th century, we invented vaccines. We started doing medicine in a way that I think is different, but is it different? And can you explain to me how it's different? And why should we trust the medical establishment more today than we did 150 years ago? Great questions. Definitely provocative. Thank you. Just reflecting on what you said, I tend to be circumspect with my patients if I am not 100% sure of an outcome. So I will always hedge a little bit. And I hope my patients don't find that frustrating. I hope they appreciate the truthfulness in this. So I would actually agree with you that an overconfident doctor is potentially dangerous and should call for a second opinion. I actually wholeheartedly agree with you about that. And just a little bit of my background, I come from a family of English majors. So I'm the only doctor in my family. So I learned very early on to not use complicated medical terms because we often put that on as armor to make ourselves sound more authoritarian. And also to speak in plain English and describe limitations of what we know. And I actually think people appreciate that truthfulness. Where we are right now, particularly because of bodies like the FDA, is we have much safer medication that's on the market because it has to go through so much rigorous vetting. Everything from the preclinical testing, where you try to find a lead compound that's likely to work in humans, the first in human testing, to then expand to clinical trials and all the record keeping that goes along with that until it finally comes for the FDA, where it has to have this balance of safety and efficacy. The COVID-19 vaccines more recently, of course, this is what we all think about, right? Those are miracles of technology. I mean, just freaking miracles. The state that we would be in right now if we didn't have those vaccines with the mortality rate in this country would be mind-boggling. It would put the plague to shame. When you say miracles of technology, you mean that it's a miracle of medical science, not that there's like Bill Gates microbots in it that are miracles of technology, just to be clear. Yeah, no, no, that's a better way of saying it. So we talk about this kind of mRNA technology. It's actually years and years and years of development and was just about ready to go to clinical trials and had actually started to go into clinical trials for some indications when COVID-19 hit. So it was the perfect time to put it in action very, very quickly. And the clinical trials were run in absurdly fast time and got approved by the FDA in relatively rapid time for the FDA where they coordinated it with the CDC review. So remember, every time one of these went before an FDA committee, two days later, it was in front of the CDC. That was no accident, right? And that didn't used to happen. So this stuff is unbelievable. And if you look at these vaccines compared to other vaccines, they're just as safe. And the efficacy is remarkable. The number of lives saved preventing people from getting extremely ill to this virus, which keeps mutating and they're still effective, is just incredible. I have for some reason, and I think it's because I live in LA, but I run into anti-vaxxers pretty often. Anti-vaxxers come in kind of two categories. There's the super hardcore right-wing anti-vaxxers, If the government tells them to do something, they don't want to do it. And then there's these left-wing hippie anti-vaxxers who believe that our bodies are perfect as they are and that they will, you know, eat some cantaloupe and everything will be fine. And I run into the second type a lot. And I'm not a doctor, obviously. The arguments that I have always hinge on, they have a story about a person where something happened to them. It's always just a personal account. How do you make someone understand numbers? Somebody will get 
a vaccine and it will actually have a bad effect on them because they're allergic to something in it or something will happen. That will happen to one in a million people, maybe. But that doesn't mean that the vaccine is not effective. And how do you combat that as a physician? I use this line in the book. Actually, one of my mentors once said to me, the plural of anecdote is not data. So an individual story shouldn't predicate our actions in life and shouldn't influence what our decisions are in medicine. Yet it does because it's so real and it's so close to us when we see it happen. When I have somebody who comes to me with a story like that, I try to meet them where they are. I try to see what their perspective is and what's driving their decision and talk about the role of anecdotes and how anecdotes influence me also. And I tell a story in the book about how certainly on our leukemia floor, someone will develop a thrombosis. And that's actually relatively rare in leukemia. But once that one person develops a thrombosis, everyone on the floor is tested for thromboses in the next three weeks. So I try to tell the story about how anecdote actually influences what I do also, but then I take a step back and realize that that's not what should guide my practice in medicine, just as it's not how I guide my practice with myself. I'll also tell my patients, I'll get personal about it and say, I would never recommend to you something that I wouldn't do myself and talk about how my wife and I and my children and my mom and everyone in my family has been vaccinated. So I believe in it enough that I do it myself. Sure. What is thrombosis? Just out of curiosity. It sounds like your thumb swells up. That's what it sounds like to me. <laughs> I guess that could happen depending on where you stick it. <laughs> it's a blood clot. I'm so sorry. <laughs> See, my parents would get really upset at me for using that word. <laughs> yeah, stop talking like a doctor, doctor. <laughs> okay, what is something that you wish all your patients knew? Oh boy. Related to the book, I would love for my patients to understand how complicated it is to run clinical trials that lead to a drug's approval. And honestly, how hard the FDA works to get it right, to make sure they're making the right decision, and how seriously those of us who've been on these FDA committees, and I chaired the FDA's committee for cancer drug approval for two years, how much we sit around that table and think about our patients and think about the doctor who's in some rural area of Ohio or California or Florida and how that doctor is going to use this drug. We really genuinely sit down and think about the health of the public. Wow. I think that is non-obvious, even though we would hope that's what happens. It's good to hear from someone who is in those rooms that that's how it goes. All right. This is maybe like a little bit of a harder one that's not really on the topic of your book, but I'm going to ask you anyway. Have you ever had a patient who could have benefited from a treatment that they just couldn't afford? And what did you do in that situation? Yeah, that's a really hard one. And that's an awful, awful situation. What we do is we try like hell to find a way that the patient can get the drug. That's the first step. I've got a great example of this. I don't know if you remember when Barack Obama was first launching Obamacare. And he told the story of a woman who had to decide between treating her breast cancer or paying her mortgage for her house. So that woman, it turns out, developed leukemia from her breast cancer treatment. And the day that Obama was in Ohio and was going to have her on stage with him, she was diagnosed with leukemia and landed in my leukemia unit. You can imagine we were flooded by reporters and people who wanted to ask this woman questions about this. And we had to develop a treatment plan for her pretty quickly because she had one of the bad leukemias, but she didn't have insurance. So what we did was to get her enrolled on Medicaid as quickly as possible so that then she wouldn't be hit with the $100,000 hospital bill. 
you can imagine that she got on Medicaid pretty quickly when she was Obama's example of Obamacare. What you may not imagine is that while she was in the hospital, Obama wrote her two letters himself, like in his own handwriting, not anything typed, checking in on her, hoping she would get better. And it was just kind of this very personal, like he really cared about this woman who was there. So it's a beautiful anecdote about her. She actually wound up going on to get a bone marrow transplant, which is even more expensive. So we were able to get her onto Medicaid to pay for that. Now let's pivot a little bit where I am now. I'm in Miami. We have a lot of folks here who aren't U.S. citizens. And we have a lot of conditions that require extraordinarily expensive drugs. So these folks, there is a safety net hospital called Jackson Memorial Hospital, which is a metro hospital down here, which takes care of these patients. We staff them, so we provide the doctor care and the recommendations, and those drugs will be paid for them through that hospital. But sometimes you have to dance to get this to happen. So we have to find ways that these folks can get outpatient medications paid for. We'll do it through charity funds. Sometimes pharmaceutical companies themselves will provide it for free. Patient organizations will help out. So we get social work and case management involved very early stage with these folks. Most of the time we can find a way to do it. Occasionally though, and it's a sad, sad statement, we have to pivot to drugs that are less expensive that patients can afford. We've got to meet them where they are. Do you think that it has led to negative health outcomes to have people having to deal with these kinds of really stressful financial situations when they're already dealing with a potentially fatal illness? Yes, I do. I've written about a couple of these patients in some of my essays in the Times where they have literally said to me, yes, my family can afford this medication, but in reality, I know eventually I'm going to die from this cancer and I'm not going to bankrupt my family on the way out. Therefore, I'm going to refuse treatment. Wow. Yeah, right? So you think about it, we talked in the previous episode about what it's like to be a dad and think about your kids in a vulnerable situation. What do you do when you're thinking about your whole family and what money you're going to leave them? Wow. We do have some international listeners. So for those of you who don't know, we pay for our healthcare in the US through insurance. It's messed up. Your system is better, basically, wherever you are. (laughs) Or at least these problems don't arise in your system. I don't know if it's better, but I know that if you get sick in Scandinavia, you don't have to worry about who's going to pay for it. So if you had a magic wand and you could change anything in our healthcare system, and I know that you know all the details of what a change in the healthcare system would entail. So let's just assume all the details would be taken care of. You can just wave a magic wand and something changes. What would you change? Folks listening in right now realize this, but when the FDA makes a decision about a drug, they are not allowed to consider costs of the drug. So... And this has come up during some of these FDA committees where somebody will raise a question and say, gee, you're proposing a drug that's given along two other highly expensive drugs. The total cost for that has got to be hundreds of thousands of dollars. How are you going to price this drug? And very quickly, a member of the FDA will stand up and say, we are not allowed to consider costs at the FDA. Just consider the science. And then it'll go to Medicare, CMS. They will say, well, FDA approved, on label, check, we'll pay for it. So. Never does a company come to the FDA and say to them, this is what we're going to charge for this drug. Yet in Europe, at the European Medical Agency, the EMA, they will actually consider cost as part of their approval. And you will see that they will say, nope, this drug costs too much for the benefit that it provides. We are not going to approve this. Wow. That's messed up. I would love to be able to approach one department of a client 
and say, this is what I'm going to do. And then once they sign off, I can charge whatever I want to the other department. So I scored this show for you. And now that I'm talking to the accounting department, that'll be $10 million (laughs) per episode. Yeah, no, the creative is not allowed to consider cost. It's crazy, right? I just think about it in my own work because part of being a professional creative is actually doing that kind of producing. That's what producing is, is making sure that whatever you want can actually be done and facilitating how you would do it. And you end up coming up with a lot of creative solutions because you're constrained by cost sometimes. There are some films that aren't constrained by cost and sometimes they come out really, really bad. That doesn't mean they're going to be good just because you can afford whatever you want. That's really crazy. So I have two final questions for you. Can you explain what number needed to treat is? There are a lot of ways of explaining how well a drug works, so its efficacy, and thinking about it from a public health perspective. When we look at efficacy, particularly in cancer trials, we look at whether it improves overall survival, and we'll look at kind of a median, which is close to an average. So how many months more on average will somebody live? And we'll look at a hazard ratio, which is how many people die at what rate under a survival curve. So if you look at like a curve of people who start off with 100 people living, and then at five years, you have 25 living, and that there's a curve to that, you think of hazard ratio that way, that rate at which people are dying. That's one way of looking at it. Another way of looking at drug efficacy from a public health perspective is how many people do you need to treat for one person to benefit from a drug? So for example, with those incredibly successful drugs that were approved for a certain type of leukemia, chronic myeloid leukemia, which we talked about in your last episode, where my word, it has allowed people with this condition to live as long as people who don't even have a leukemia diagnosis. The number needed to treat to see that benefit might be one and a half people. So you treat one and a half people for one person to benefit. You treat 15 people for 10 to benefit. For something that doesn't work as well, you may need to treat 400 people for one person to benefit. Did you say 400? So for example, with cancer screening, some screening tests, you might need to screen 400 people for one person to benefit from the screening test. By benefit, you mean they caught the cancer early and they survive? You got it. Okay, all right. So what it sounded like to me when I read about this was that it means that the thing works one in 400 times. It's a little different than that. It's how many people do you have to treat for one person to benefit? So in other words, it's almost a measure of how many people are you wasting their time for that one person to benefit? With something like screening for certain types of rare cancers, that makes perfect sense to me that like, you might screen me for some weird cancer. I probably don't have it, but 400 people, one person you would say definitely doesn't have it, might actually have it. And then you screen them and then you can treat them. But I think for medications, we all assume the number needed to treat is one. And that if you give us the medication, it's going to work on us. But that's not true for every medication. That's not true. And the way I put it in context with my patients is when you go to your primary care doctor and you have high blood pressure and the primary care doctor gives you a high blood pressure medicine, it's probably guaranteed to lower your blood pressure a little bit. When you come to me for a cancer treatment, I can't give you that same guarantee that it's going to shrink your cancer. Some of the treatments that I offer might work one third of the time. Then I say to my patients, you know, as opposed to those high blood pressure medicine where everyone is going to have a drop in their blood pressure, that just simply isn't 
true with cancer medications. Not everyone is going to have shrinkage of their tumor. Yikes. What is the most difficult part of being an oncologist and how has your years in the profession changed you? Most people assume that the most difficult part of being an oncologist is telling somebody that they have cancer. But the dirty little secret of it is that I'm not the one telling them they have cancer. It's often a primary care doctor or a surgeon who's telling somebody that they have cancer and then they're sending that person to me. And I'm talking to somebody about what we can do to get rid of the cancer. I have a lovely patient population and I find what I do to be incredibly rewarding because the discussions we have are about treating their cancer and life goals and what they want to accomplish. So often for people, it's the first time that they took a step back and say, okay, what do I really want to do with the rest of my life? And I get to be part of that conversation. So it's actually beautiful. The hardest part about what I have to do is when the cancer comes back. But I would tell you that probably nine times out of 10, my patient already knows. So I'm not giving them news that's new to them. They know something has returned. Something's gone wrong. They assume it's the cancer. And we confirm that. Then we talk about life goals again and different types of treatments. Has having to give that news to many people, has that changed the way you look at your own life and just the way you see everything? Oh my God, absolutely. I can't tell you what percentage of my patients reach age 65 or 67 and retire. They've worked their whole life to get to this point to retire, to enjoy themselves and enjoy time with their family. And within a year, they have a cancer diagnosis. So I think there are a lot of people in my profession, oncologists, oncology nurses, oncology pharmacists, who don't wait. We don't wait for that age 65 to do something with our kids or to be part of our family. And we probably continue to be enmeshed in our family, maybe more than other people. Because we also see that when our patients have that diagnosis, particularly if they're terminal, they always pivot to their family. They're always spending more time with their family. That's the choice they make. So if you're going to make that choice when you have a terminal cancer diagnosis, why not make that choice now? Wow. Well, that's a great place to end. I do have to ask you the final question, which is to recommend two books to our audience. I'm just starting to read the book Pharma by Gerald Posner. He will actually be with me at the Miami Book Fair to talk about both of our books. He's a fabulous writer. The other book I would recommend is Tornado of Life by Jay Baruch. He's an emergency room physician who writes very, very honestly about his interactions with his patients and the limitations of the care he can provide truly on the front lines. Dr. Sakuris, thank you so much for joining us. Lucas, thank you for doing this. This was genuinely fun. My guest next week is Jesse Hempel. We're going to be reading... All This Could Be Different by Sarah Thankham Matthews. If you're inclined to read along with the podcast, you should definitely read this one because we get into the weeds about some of the characters and some of the themes in the book. It's an interesting book with an interesting main character that is very outside of my own experience and probably outside of most of your experiences too. So check it out. Enjoy it. We'll see you next week. The Book Society podcast is produced by me, Lucas Cantor Santiago, and edited and also produced by Santiago Ramones. If you like this podcast, please rate us and review us. It really, really helps the show. It only takes a few seconds, and it's really, really awesome. This episode and so many of the episodes that we do in the fall and in the spring on the Book Society podcast are done in partnership with the Miami Book Fair. 
The Miami Book Fair takes place in person the week before Thanksgiving in November, but it happens all year round. You can go to miamibookfair.com. You can listen to archived recordings. You can hear some of the great events that Santiago and I have been privileged to see already. We're recording from the Miami Book Fair right now. So if I sound a little bit different, that's why. It's an amazing event that you should check out. They are so kind to partner with us and some of the most amazing guests that you've heard on this podcast have come courtesy of the book fair. So check them out, miamibookfair.com. So there were these medicines that were called patent medicines with dubious names like Hamlin's Wizard Oil. I'm sorry, doctor, are you telling me that I should stop taking Hamlin's Wizard Oil? (laughs) (laughs) Well, as long as you're taking it orally, that's okay. Any other way, though, (laughs) stop. (laughs) Thank <laughs> you.